In this edition of the podcast, the things that inspire us. The rising of the sun, the wind in the trees, and the tragedies that shape our world. Can we find hope and inspiration in the toughest of times? For me, I think the worst did happen, and I carried on breathing. So in a way, it's a horrible thing, but eventually made me braver. Suzanne Bailey-Yukawa tells her remarkable story in this special edition of Inside the Gallery. I'm Tim Stackpool. Thanks for downloading the podcast once again. And thanks to our sponsor, Pixel Perfect Pro Lab, for their continued support. And you can learn all about their services at pixelperfect.com.au. And their contribution goes towards the transcripts of each edition, which can be found at our website at www.insidethegallery.com.au. We recorded the most popular podcast of the series in the previous edition, and I'm sure this edition will prove to be just as compelling. This is a year of challenges, no doubt about it. Getting through the day for some of us is victory enough. And as we've heard in previous editions, some remarkable inspiration is being found in these longest of days. If you haven't heard of artist Suzanne Bailey-Yukawa, you'll be astonished at her story and her struggle that began in 1985, but harks back even further to a chance meeting in London in 1978. It's a story of unconventional love, of cultural divides, and of terrible circumstances too, and legal complexities and minefields, I guess, is a more appropriate way to describe that, I think. And in that regard, it is important for me to let you know that this edition of the podcast is concerned with the artist's inspiration, and in doing so, does not intend to judge the actions of individuals or corporations as described in this discussion. But the material is included to convey the perspective and challenges as recognised and interpreted by the artist only. Suzanne Bailey-Yukawa is British-born, generally residing in Japan for reasons that will become clear as we discuss her story, but... She is currently in the UK due to travel restrictions. She joins us via WhatsApp. And Suzanne, I first want to talk about your style of art for anyone not familiar with your work, and then we'll unfold your story and lead into how you are influenced by such an incredible story reaching halfway around the world. Your art, as you've pointed out yourself, can appear digitally created, (laughs) but it is in fact all created by hand, right? Basically, for me, it's almost a sacred expression. And I, and for me, the most natural th- expression, the most natural thing in the world is uh, geometrical patterns mm-hmm. and symmetrical art. And for me, it feels um, like a lifeline. At the same time, it feels almost, it's like ancient and futuristic. But in my form, it's always in line with a pattern or breaking the rules of a pattern, <laughs> if that makes sense, a contrast. And are you using pen? Is that how you're putting it together? And how are you adding the colours? I'm always experimenting, of course, but I mean, pencil, ink pens I adore. I try to like break my own rules, but um, basically I, I love ink pen and I feel ink pen is my other arm. <laughs> mm. If I was to describe your work, it's kind of like, I don't want to say stained glass window-like, but you talked about geometric patterns. So in a way, very, very structured. And I just wonder whether the geometry represents a kind of control that you wish you could have wrangled over the past 35 years or so. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Actually, as a joke, I would say yes. (laughs) 
Okay. <laughs> no, because I joke with family and friends. I joke. I say. I. I. I say the perfect order in my work mm. is not reflected in my life. But. But sorry to say, in real terms, no. No. <laughs> because because actually, like no, going back, like in childhood, as soon as I picked up a pen, I did the same, and you know, I had a mother who who was artistic, but not not. Uh, in a different way as a singer and dancer but she thought I was she had a small daughter who was obsessed and perhaps um, abnormal because um, I was creating these patterns and for me you know even at that very very young age it seemed the most natural form of expression in the world so it's evolved Mm. While it does look like on the outside, oh, yes, it could be you reflect order in your creative work because it's missing in your real life. That's not the case with me. Mm. I'm kind of reflecting. I mean, in some of the artworks, you'll see everything is symmetrical and then I break my own rules and it's it's chaos and symmetrical. But it's actually reflecting what we all all go through, Mm. Mm. you know our patterns of of everyone. So the 35 years has only served to give me the passage for the patterns to evolve. If you flip through your work, you do get those surprises Uh uh, where the the pattern does become more chaotic. And then, uh, and then all of a sudden, yes. um, and I might ask you a little bit down the track whether yes. any of that chaos yeah. happened mm. perhaps simultaneously mm-hmm. or reflects back on certain periods in your experience. But now let's go yeah. back and try and understand where all this inspiration for you has come from. In the late 1970s, yes. you were a 21-year-old ballet student in London, as you just alluded to. Yes. Was dance going to be your life? Yes, I mean, um, and sorry, going back to when I first picked up the pencil, mm. like I don't know, three or four, I was also in the in the ballet class at the same time. So it was always my divided passion. I couldn't choose between the two. Mm. But by the time I was twenty one, I was facing my own reality because you can be as I was devoted to both art forms, but at that time, I was, you know, beginning to accept that where is an artist can evolve and you're not reliant, for example, on the shape of your hand or the length of your fingers. But in ballet, of course, you know, you can't change what you've been dished out with at birth. Mm. So you can't improve the instep. Well, you can to a degree, but you, you can lengthen your leg a little bit, but not that much, you know. And and um, because I hadn't got into the Royal Ballet and I had got into other ballet schools, etc. Um, but for me, it was it was a kind of at 21 anyway. It was a, a crossroads yeah. for me. And I was almost deciding to go to Austria or Germany to join an opera ballet company because there was scope for the natural born dancer who was not perhaps blessed with the best feet or mm-hmm, something, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> I was at a crossroads, but as I said, I I um I had two artistic passions and could never decide between the two because actually they both kind of went together anyway, you know. If that makes sense. Yes. It's the artist yeah. conundrum and Sometimes a conflict that, that great athletes suffer as well. But yeah. coming back to you, yeah. it was a London restaurant in 1978. You met a man yes. who was yes. 28 years your yeah. senior, and that's when yes. your world changed. <laughs> so who was he and how did you first connect? Okay, so if ever a young lady had no no plan to have a boyfriend, think romantically, think anything other than 
devoted to, you know, study of art. That was me. Mm -hmm. And then what I experienced when we met and this unbelievable chance encounter, you know, we were from completely different paths. Destiny had brought us together for the first time. And it was it was just uncanny. And I mean, I can't find words mm. to convey that energy of that moment that stayed with me throughout the following eight years, even. Mm. It, it, it was incredible because there was such an extraordinary, instant, intense connection, chemistry between us. It was like, if everyone can say, you know, a, 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 a spiritual compatibility born in that second. Mm. And from that moment onwards, j just this extraordinary, you know, realization of, of our compatibility. And from then on, I always say that I'm living proof that such a phenomenal connection can transcend everything. Mm. And who was this person? And that person? <laughs> was Akihisa Yukawa and one of his first words to me in a very beautiful British accent <laughs> I didn't it was the shock that he you know he he was Japanese banker you know he was obviously very handsome and and charismatic and the first words he said to me uh please call me Aki mm -hmm. so Aki obviously well-educated uh, as you say, English accent, came from Japan, but he held a fairly significant position in business in Japan, didn't he? When we met, well, in fact, at that time when we met, he was the, Aki was the manager of uh, Sumitomo Bank London. And it was his second time to be stationed in London. And before that evening where my life changed, mm. <laughs> he'd already been in London like two years. And um, there is extraordinary background. You know, he, he was known as a, frankly, a powerful Sumitomo Bank executive. Yes. And th this bank is significant in Japan, for those who don't know. It's probably, what, the second, the, the second biggest Japanese bank, if, if I'm right? Yes, mm. I should say that. Yes. Mm. So Sumitomo Bank at that time and now, I mean, it was like one of the top two, three in Japan mm. then, and mm. now it's one of the top five in the world. Mm. So very, very powerful. I mean, there isn't one Japanese family that does not have um, a Sumitomo product or yeah. something, you know, I mean, powerful yeah. presence and um, hugely respected. Now, at this time, he wasn't a single man, though, was he? No. So some weeks later, um, he explained to me that um, he had a legal wife mm -hmm. and that um, so he was married and his wife had had a terrible um, brain injury. Mm. Um, it originally had an accident and for basically was hospitalized. A difficult situation, a conflicting situation for him, pretty much had adult children already. Yes. So Aki uh, explained to me that um, he had he was had two amazing grown-up sons mm. who were pretty much similar age to me. But while on the surface we seem to be, you know, different worlds, years apart in age and just very, very different backgrounds, However, what I soon discovered was that Aki had a phenomenal passion for the arts. And while he looked like by day the exquisite 
serious, successful banker. He was an unbelievably gifted pianist, but his personal belief that unfolded in those early weeks was that he believed there was no higher calling than to dedicate oneself to pursuit of your art. Mm. And and in me, he did. He, I guess he did, you know, discover that kindred spirit. Mm. And that was that the light that, you know, that that was the essence of, you know, our phenomenal connection mm. that crossed these boundaries of age and culture and indeed prejudice. You fall pregnant with a child, Cassie. You're first with Aki, but you're not married at the moment and you head to Japan. Your relationship may not have been widely known. How did the family react? Aki's family, particularly, you know, his parents, not other members of his family, but his parents were not typically Japanese at all. Mm. And I was quite astonished that he believed from the onset, you know, as the months passed, it was Aki that always believed from the onset that his parents particularly his mother, would embrace our our situation. And you know what? That was the first blessing, the fact that he told his parents. And when the time came, very terrifying moment came when he introduced us, Mm -hmm. myself, and, you know, the first daughter to them. They completely embraced us. They gave us their blessing. It was extraordinary. And... I remember one of the first questions. So Aki's mother was Takako and she became to be like my real mother. And Takako asked me one question, which was like, it could have been make or break. Mm. (laughs) And she said to me, why did you leave the ballet, Suzanne? Mm. And I didn't go into any details, you know, like I've said earlier on about my crossroads, et cetera. And I just said, I was terrified, but I said, because I love your son. And at that moment, Takako and I, we, it was like we had a bond mm. uh, because she, she said to me, Suzanne, thank you. Thank you for making Aki happy again. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so I'll, I'll stand corrected and happy to be corrected. It was not hidden. Your relationship was not hidden from his family and nor, I guess, because of that. Was it no. seen to be uh, dishonorable or scandalous or anything like that within his circle of family and friends in Japan? No, and Aki was actually most worried about my mother in the UK. And she gave him her blessing Mm. too. Mm. So (laughs) we were very lucky in that respect. So you had first child with him and then went ahead and you were pregnant with a second child with him. And then in 1985, Aki boards a flight from Tokyo to Osaka. And what happens then? Aki covered in, in in his position he he was flying every every week or at least every other week and he covered um europe southeast asia he was also president of the new york branch and he made domestic flights which was especially tokyo osaka he did it at least um every other week so you can imagine the amount of flying and traveling he did mm. and it was absolutely out of character very unusual for him to say, I mean, we all have off days and tired and don't want to do something, but it was, he, he, he was very, very determined that that day he did not want to go to Osaka. And he, you know, woke up and, and um, the whole focus of the morning conversation was, I 
don't want to fly today and I'm going to do my best to cancel it. There's a meeting I don't want to attend and um, I'll keep you posted. And, and you know, it was almost as if he, he you know, those days, no mobiles. And mm. the okay, he had a, a, a direct line in his office, but he, 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 he was like determined to stay in touch more than usual that day. So that was the start of, of how it happened. And that morning I went for, I went to Aiku Bjoin, which is the Aiku Maternity Hospital for a checkup mm-hmm. and everything was fine. And um, I came back, I looked ahead of me. He had returned home for lunch, carrying our favorite um sushi (laughs) and uh, it was uh, it was almost as if I don't know I mean he he was like irritated by then not with me but the fact that he couldn't stay at home with me but considering being a workaholic and you know it, it was highly highly unusual he had asked his secretary that morning he said at the very very least he wanted not to fly um, I mean, it was okay to choose between if it was a domestic trip to either fly or take the bullet Shinkansen bullet train f- for comfort. It was hugely important for him to take the Shinkansen if he really had to go. And his secretary informed him that um, apparently, sorry, Yukawa-san, she said that um, Shink- the bullet train is full, but there's one seat at the six o'clock flight to Osaka, yep. which he very, very reluctantly accepted. This was Japan Airlines flight 123 on that day. Yes, this, the six o'clock flight was the Japan Airlines 123. He was booked on one seat reluctantly. I can never forget that last embrace. And it was probably about an hour later. We had a power cut in, in the apartment it was very strange because, you know, if you have a power cut in your apartment, obviously you check the fuse box or you check if it's affected the entire building. And my kind neighbor, um, by coincidence, had come to see me and I asked her, is it in your apartment? And we called Tokyo Denki, Tokyo Electricity. And um, there was no reason why we why I had no power. Um, so there was a promise of a um, technician to come, someone from Tokyo Denki, uh, to, to see what was wrong. Um, so it was during that wait. And at around, I would say practically at 7 p.m., um, the power came back. And at that moment, Cassie was looking for um, her, her favorite children's TV program. Um, but the TV program, in fact, all, all channels had been interrupted with breaking news of um, at first there was an announcement saying that um, that a, a, a Boeing plane had gone missing. So I'm trying to to reassure Cassie. Cassie at that time was four years old, um, bilingual probably stronger Japanese and very, very advanced for her age. And she was saying she was probably understanding more than me at that moment. And she was saying, oh, mummy, oh, there's a plane missing. And she said, is it daddy's? And I and I trying to reassure both her and myself, because I, I genuinely did not know at that time. 
I didn't know that a Boeing 747 actually operated on a domestic route. I, I thought it was only long haul. So, you know, I, I thought I had grounds to, I could reassure us both. And then it was just extraordinary that Cassie was saying to me, she, she was obviously still worrying that her, her, could daddy be on that plane that was missing? And I kept saying, no, he's on, there's so many, there were many planes around that time. And, you know, as, as the moments, as the clock ticked, I, I, you know, obviously that anxiety, there was an anxiety creeping in. And then pretty, pretty soon, I mean, it was quite, I'd say horrifically soon after seven, that um, a passenger list appeared. And at that point, I mean, we, you know that there was 524 passengers on that flight. So when the passenger list appeared and I, you know, have to bear in mind that I was, you know, really not believing that Aki was on that plane and his four-year-old little daughter, obviously already anxious, um, probably understanding more than me. Um, And then we sat like on the floor um, you know, I put her on my knee and I said, we were, we were just, we just fell silent watching the passenger list. This is really so ingrained, like page after page and each page. Oh, I said, daddy's not there. It's okay. He's not on the bad plane. You know, he, he's not the one in trouble. And, and then, but each page went through and I'm, I, it didn't click that, that you for you, Kawa, if, if he was there, it would appear on the last page. Mm. And then suddenly it's like last page. And, but then like, it was, I I can't find words. It's like, I see it visually, but the shock of that last page. And it was, it it was in this, this, this layout. It was Yukawa, Akihisa, 56. Mm. And it was like, Oh, I, 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 you know, Cassie burst into tears and it was, I, 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 I couldn't breathe. I was like paralyzed. And it was at that moment on the phone started to ring and it was Takako first and then various others. But it was like a paralyzing moment because it was unbelievable. The neighbor came back to me who had popped in previously and she didn't even know that Aki was on that flight, you know, and she knew, she just sunk in the chair with astonishment. And and then I never forget her kindness, how, how, you know, she saw me at the worst moment in my life, you know, mm. like if ever one is shocked. And the horrible thing for me was that from that moment on, it's like, it's really hard to say in words, but like I was actually by that week in my ninth month of pregnancy. Mm. And it was like, I've gone cold saying it now because it was like, it's terrifying thinking that your shock and your grief oh, yes. could hurt your unborn. Yes. And at the same time, you feel you can't catch your breath and breathe because you're too shocked. And you, you, I, I, I didn't know how to breathe and I, I you know the fear of the uh, and he one of Aki's last words to me apart from saying I love you I don't want to go and I'll see you tomorrow he says take care of our last creation mm. 
And that was those words were like just giving me a fraction of of just breathe, you know. Then the Tokyo Denki guy came, and there was no known reason why we had that power cut, no known reason. Mm. And it, it, the power had come back. I mean, it, it is coincidence. I'm not saying it's supernatural or anything, but it is uncanny that the power came back probably around the same moment at the point of impact mm. of the crash. It was thereafter. I was a different person, and I, my, our world was destroyed, and everything that he'd ever said to me, because it's like, yes, there was a huge age gap between us, but throughout eight years, which I blessed and so lucky for, um, that's my message, you know. It's almost as if he'd prepared me and told me what to do, because inevitably chances were, you know, he'd die first having that being much older than me. And and that's when that's when it all kicked in, trying to thereafter became my mission to keep alive his belief system. Mm. And it's not the end of the story. In fact, it's kind of like the beginning of a huge struggle for you and who was to be compensated, in particular in this instance by the bank, being Aki's employer while he took that business trip on that plane. You pretty much received nothing, even though you were the mother of his children. The bottom line is that when an important senior executive decision is made and this is both then and today everyone will follow and respect that decision whether it's good or bad mm. because it's ingrained in 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 Japanese society that if a senior decision is made then it is more dishonorable, it's a bigger wrong, if you like, to disobey, even if the request, the instruction, is actually a wrong, if that makes sense. And this is to do with the instruction as to who was to be compensated, even from the bank's perspective, Aki's employer. Yeah, and I and I said, well, it's actually worse than that, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because Aki's body was found four days after the crash. I mean... Some were never found. Mm. Um, his body was found on day four, and day four, our, it, it was the beginning of my totally destroyed world. Because until that moment, there was hope that he might. Well, you, you, you know, you will always hope for survival. Day five, the very next day, which was Friday, and he was killed on Monday, and his body was found on Thursday. Day five, the chairman of Sumitomo Bank called in Aki's parents and his eldest son and at that moment made a decision not not based on how Japan would have treated me or a similar situation, but it was based on that chairman's decision how to remove me. When I say remove me and my children and our family identity, he made the decision that we were not bereaved. So it's worse than not being married. It's like your whole world is ripped away and then it's your whole identity ripped away. And even worse than that, it was Aki's belief and wishes destroyed. I should also say that until Aki lost his life, his wishes were powerfully respected. Mm. And that included our life together. So my fight, yes, compensation was involved and is part of the picture. 
But the bigger issue was that his wishes, his belief system, his everything was destroyed with his life. And my my fight has been to obtain identity that shouldn't have been wiped away. And more than that, just as my right to be the person he loved mm. and who he, who he left behind because actually at that time I wasn't allowed to have an, uh, a lawyer. I wasn't, I mean, I didn't even want to talk about facts and figures. I was still struggling to breathe. Everything was so rushed and forced upon me and decisions made and I was too ill to deal with it. Mm. And, um, and having a baby. Do you know, day 10 after Diana was born, I was pushed into a lawyer's office to make a life decision. That, and then I went back in the hospital from anxiety and stress. So I went back to hospital, not because of the birth, but because of the shock. Mm. And then when I left the hospital, sedated, the next day I was forced to sign something that basically affected my daughters forevermore in terms of giving up their inheritance. But I mean, that was a separate issue I should have been left to to grieve and to, you know, once they knew that Diana was safely born and that every, everything was about following that initial request, senior request, poor Takako and Aki's father, Kazuo. I mean, we loved each other dearly. I really mean that. And I knew that they told me everything and were trying to protect me. But they were also forced, you know, it doesn't matter how elite the family. And until Takako's death, how many years later, she always said to me, I'm so, so sorry, Aki's chairman made us do it. If it had gone to the court, our identity wouldn't have been removed. And if one's looking at financial terms, yes, we would have been awarded equal settlement. Within Japanese law, it sounds very almost quirky, that while there is this huge prejudice against then cohabitation and children outside of marriage, however, within Japanese domestic law, um, we had ample proof to show that Aki was going to marry. Given that was his intention, and given the governance within Japan at the time, you had every right to be included as one of the bereaved. Yes, and you know what? At that time, I was powerless to fight back. I, I, all I had to do was stay alive for our children. Mm. There are two directions, and in that case, for me, it was ending my life, which I could have easily done if I didn't have our children, his children, mm. or going forward, being the best mother I could be, and and carry on breathing. Mm. So you know that was my focus. I I I had no power. It took me many years. At that time, Takako was my emotional rock, mm. and I'd like to think that I was to her too. And but it took me many years to understand, you know, what my rights were. I'm driven now at this point in time to still put things right because I don't want anyone to suffer in the way that I did. Mm. Was there any level of, and it may not have been compensation, but did you receive payment? And this is for the benefit of people who are listening so they understand how the story course, unfolds. Of course. You received some payment mm. which was to go towards the education of the children. Basically, after that terrible meeting, as I said, on day five where, where a senior decision was made about removing us as bereaved, the fact is, I mean, it has been reported. You look at various 
media articles mm. and it stated I received a particular sum but what is not known is the background of that sum that sum that was given to me based on the need for us to three of us to live and in most part to provide private education you, you took the kids back to the UK after this Yes, yes. But the agreement that I signed, I discovered many things years later. So we have, there are various angles to this, Mm. but bear in mind, we were all consumed with grief. Mm. So impossible to think clearly. And Aki's parents were instructed by the chairman of Sumitomo Bank to make a payment, make that payment to us. But there there are terrible conditions on the paper that I signed that told me what I could not do. Yeah. But it is signed by Aki's parents. And for the rest of their lives, as we carried on without Aki, particularly Takako would say, I'm so sorry, we did it because we had no choice. And again, I say outside of Japan, it's hard to understand Oh, yes, it's a cultural obligation. Exactly. It was a cultural obligation. And I consider that amount brought about a bigger curse to our family Mm. because it actually said that you are not allowed to claim compensation from Japan Airline or any of the Sumitomo Bank's affiliated companies. And moreover, you are not, your children not allowed to claim for the Japan Airlines Scholarship Fund mm. that was set up for all the, all the victims' children. Mm. And it basically said, you are not allowed to say you are the family of Akihisa. And that is why Takako and I cried, because she couldn't reject it. You know, she had to mm. follow it. My role was that I loved her like my mother she was aki's mother she was became she was my world and i couldn't i couldn't hurt her and they were forced to give me that amount of money on paper it looks like the agreement is between aki's parents and myself but the reality is the control came only from the chairman one one would say this is an assertion so your assertion is that the bank put pressure on Aki's parents to form this agreement with you. Yes, absolutely. The assertion that you're making regarding the pressure that the bank put on Aki's parents, is that disputed by them? Yes. Yes, it's important for us to point out that the bank hold a position which is in contrast to your perspective. Yes. However, as I said in the introduction, this podcast is about getting your position, and understand the inspiration that is behind your work. So go on. Sure. They still say I'm not the bereaved. I have got every proof of family identity. So basically an an amount was given to Aki's parents by the bank with whom Aki was under service with while while he was flying and the plane went down. So his parents received uh, compensation from the bank and then it was out of that compensation that they gave you a a sum of money to assist in the education of the girls? Well, not quite, because the compensation, which gave me £340,000, which was supposed to... I mean, that is out there on the public domain, that figure. Yes, but that came through Aki's parents. 
that came through Aki's parents and they, Sumitomo, their position is that they they paid the Yukawa family Mm. end of. Mm. And we are not Yukawa family, Mm. they Mm. say end of. Mm. Today, I am trying to prove the violation because in any culture, I have got more proof of family identity than is required in a lifetime. Mm. But It's a very convoluted story, but up to this point in the story, you hadn't received any compensation from the bank nor the airline. I've received no compensation from Japan Airline or from the bank, and that included Sumitomo. Yes. Now, difficult for you, I understand, reading a press release from... Uh, yeah. Japan Airlines from 2001. Yeah. Difficult, oh my gosh, difficult, yes. to, difficult to read yeah. with you, yeah. but Thanks. it says yeah. that JAL and Boeing paid compensation to Aki's legitimate yeah. family is what it says. The amount is yeah. undisclosed, yeah, but know. according to usual practice, uh-huh. it took into account funeral expenses, condolence money, and compensation based on the mm. victim's earnings. Unknown to JAL mm. and Boeing at the time was the existence of mm. Aki's lover, mm. This is what it says in the press release, Miss Suzanne Bailey and their daughter Cassie. Yeah. She was pregnant with another daughter yeah. born later named Diana. Yeah. Now, it also yeah. says that Boeing and JAL shared the compensation to all the next of kin of the JL123 victims. JAL, mm-hmm. it says, did not know of Miss Bailey and her daughters until August 1995 when Miss Bailey visited JAL's London office in the UK. Yeah. And you were making mm-hmm. inquiries there, it acknowledges about education support for the children of accident victims. Now, there's difficulties here for you, as I say, talking about (laughs) Aki's legitimate family, first of all. So, you know, and these, Uh I think, are very specifically chosen words. And Mm -hmm. then they go on to ask, as a formality, JAL required proof of Mm -hmm. identity for Diana, the eldest daughter, Cassie, had been acknowledged as Aki's Mm -hmm. child by Aki in Mm -hmm. his lifetime. So you then had to get... Diana's paternity confirmed by the British High Court in March yeah. 2000. And then it says in April 2000, oh. JAL offered education support mm. to you in response to your earlier request. Yes. And, and did you accept that? Okay. Um, reluctantly, yes. <laughs> reluctantly, yeah. But can I say that there is a very important reason why I reached out in '95. And not before. Mm-hmm. And this is a reason that is not understood outside of Japanese culture. So going back to the promise that Takako and Kazuo made to Sumitomo Bank, that they would help me and that I wasn't allowed to make official compensation claim. Mm. Takako was like my mother, as you know, and we had a very, very amazing relationship. In about nine, 1995, three years before Takako's death, And around her 90th birthday, she was completely alert, sound mind, completely with it, extraordinary mind. And she said to me, she knew that she didn't have so many more years to live Mm. because Kazuo had had already passed away in 95. And then Takako was the new head of the family. And she unbelievably gave me a different blessing. And she said for the first time, I was allowed to take destiny in my own hands and she formally gave me permission to approach Japan Airline uh-huh. and the bank. Yep. That was a turning point. So the question that's not answered is, 
did really did Japan Airline know of our existence back in 85? Or was it genuine that, that they, they didn't discover me until I suddenly came out in 94, 95? Yes, well, we can only go and, by the said, by the press, um, the official press statements that they've made. Yeah, yeah. no, no, oh, oh, sure, of course, of course. The extra financial commitment that came was when it was realised that Cassie and Diana had an extraordinary musical gift. And um, there was an extra, uh, obviously, cost to nurture a special gift. Mm. People think it comes free, but it actually costs mm. more. Mm. And um, so, so, so Takako was funding that. Mm. And I had always said to her, the whole point, if out of a disaster, if lives have been taken unnaturally it should be those responsible for the event who should pay it shouldn't be you know a family deepened into further loss or complexity so with that belief takako had given me permission and that's why japan airline suddenly heard from me initially it was about the education fund Mm that I I was requesting, which was not a compensation issue. It was a separate issue Mm. for the victim's children, for all the children. And then the breakthrough was that when when we obtained the declaration of parentage in the family division of the High Court, and that was in 2000, at that point, prior to that order being obtained, Japan Airline had said to me, if the order is obtained, we will act accordingly and we will accept the evidence if you achieve it. Mm. And But the order in itself, I have to say, was even rare in the UK because the last order of that kind had been obtained, I think, back in 74. So there's only like one or two, ours was the second one, that had been obtained how many years mm. after the death of the father. Mm. So you had to get Aki's name put on the girl's birth certificates. Well, there was a deeper challenge to that. I don't know if you're aware, but there is no legislation that accounts for the birth that took place outside of the UK. So what should have happened in the year 2000 was that after the High Court order was made, then so Cassie's order was in place because Aki had made a statutory oath during his lifetime for Cassie. So she was fine, but the difficulty was for Diana, Mm. and she was born in Tokyo. Mm. So while we had the rare declaration of parentage, I didn't know, and many officials, it was unknown then, because I suppose quite unusual, there was still no legislation to amend Diana's birth certificate purely because she had been born outside the UK, Mm. and it happens to children born of the armed forces outside of the UK. So the media reported it's euphoric, it's amazing, and um, they have the declaration. But no one knew, no one dug deeper to realise that actually poor Diana was still um, having an incomplete birth certificate Mm. because there was no legislation. It took me another nine years to campaign. And it was basically in 2009 that the Secretary of State wavered the usual criteria. Uh, An instruction was sent from the Foreign Office to the consulate, British consulate in Tokyo, and um, Dinah was like reborn in 2009 at like the age of 24, (laughs) (laughs) And, and father's details. So by 2009, that was the passage 
of why I couldn't speak out and why why it took. There was no shorter way of doing it. And um, so it was extraordinary that a new birth certificate was issued. So Aki was added, like we were added to his Japanese family register in 2011 stroke 12 he was added to family records in 2009 mm. which was a euphoric moment in his memory mm. and that was a first mm. that had never happened before retrospectively you know that is only like one of the examples of the unique legal steps that were mm. taken and of the investigations I did and the digging and like the the experts that helped me and the senior government officials who helped me and so fast forward then we get to um, a, a week before the tsunami hit in March 2011 okay that the Japanese government approved my appeal to amend Aki's family registration in Japan. Mm -hmm. And that's never happened in history. Mm -hmm. in, in the UK, I was constantly being told by the Foreign Office, oh, it's wonderful what you're doing. We respect what you're doing, but there's no legislation to fit your case. This must be only under Japanese law. So I then go back to Japan and then Japanese legal experts are saying, we respect what you're doing, but you don't fit under Japanese law. And in the end, the breakthrough achievement was achieved by applying both English and Japanese law. Yeah. And I, I think I just want to um, interrupt the train of thought because people listening are probably concerned about the well-being of Cassie and Diana. But I should point out, Cassie, she's a, a respected concert pianist. Diana yes. has done very well. She's a violinist, I know. Um, she's had recording deals. Yes. She's recorded albums. Yes. If there could be a rock star of the classic music world in Japan, then Diana is it. So I just want to assure people that, that the children you have with Aki are doing well. Yes. And I was just going to say doing well and also um, producing many grandchildren. <laughs> very good, very good. So where are you at now and what, are you, what do you still need to achieve now regarding this? The key issue is that, you know, after all the accomplishments and I, their mother, the person that Aki left behind, who he loved, and I love and miss him as if it was yesterday, you know, and thank you for highlighting the fact that I devoted all of best part of the years to putting things right, putting my daughter's names on their family record. And now that's resolved. The bigger picture is when a big company signs up to, for example, the UN Global Compact, because how can many powerful companies in the world gather together and promise to say that they behave correctly, they treat people correctly, basically follow all global principles in human rights and, and work practice. And in reality, they don't. And there is no way, there is no method to hold those that abuse this or violate those principles. There's no way to hold them to account. While at the same time, they've made a public commitment to respect everybody's rights, to respect human rights in general. So my key question and what I'm fueled with today, and it's, it's a passion behind much of my artwork as well, it is about truth, accountability and transparency. Mm. Because at the end of the day, all of my struggles that has consumed 35 years 
has happened and has caused this suffering because those fundamental, the fundamental beliefs have been ignored. It goes, it boils back to the same question. There was an article I had recently about my case, but how do you hold a, a, mm. a global, a corporate bank to account mm. or, or indeed a government? So you're now, or you always have been, an artist and yeah. activist at the same time. Thank you. Yes, yes. And I have to say that um, Aki was my most avid supporter. I mean, he absolutely, he believed in my my art. Of course he would. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, my whole purpose has been to maintain the belief system that we shared and to fulfill the promises. And one of the promises, which was the one he loved most, was that I would continue to develop and strike out a new dimension in my art. Mm -hmm. And he is behind the core of that. And he is today. But each work I produce, it's like, it's not protest art at all. No. I don't want to ever say no. protest. You know, but each work that I do, there is a, an energy. It, it's always attached to a belief and a power to achieve. Mm. For example, each artwork, one I will link it to um, truth. Another, well, I mean, I, obviously many artists have produced work driven by living in a pandemic, mm. you know, mm. but everything, there, there is an energy in it. Again, it's the energy that Aki gave me and that has stayed with me 35 years after his death. And I'd like to think that in each work, that there is that same energy because, you know, I, I'm still trying to achieve a better, a better artistic expression. Mm. Every every artist will want to improve and evolve and have the better way to express something, but I think it's a it's an evolving energy, and I think that or it's as I say, lovely feedback from particularly my dearest Japanese friends and the private collectors who have collected my art because you know while some will say we were on record a secret family but what is still haunting me today is that I was actually a secret artist because my first solo exhibition that Aki was so enthusiastically planning be before the disaster obviously that didn't happen and I left Japan and then I followed a different path of almost invisibility I have only exhibited my art in a very enclosed way and only to a select audience. Mm, you had to encloak um, it in a way. So, absolutely. Mm. And for every possible reason, and it's the messages that I'm giving in the expression of like, whether it's the precision of the, you know, the geometrical pattern that I believe has a strength of its own but, and combined with, you know, a chaotic pattern, but, the two together, that contrast together, it, it is representing a challenge that we all have. And then the final picture of how, how I see it finished is that it's given the energy for us to get over it, if that makes sense. Eventually, um, hopefully. Eventually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, well, I mean, you had an exhibition um, planned in Tokyo prior to COVID yeah. taking hold on the world, and that got put on hold as yes. well. So, I mean, plenty of frustrations yes. in your life continuing today, plenty of victories, of course, and plenty to be grateful for as well. But your whole world, though, your whole life has been shaped by these events. Do you look back on that and go, 
Did I deserve this in my life? Should I have had a better life or would I have not wished for any other life? Uh, the latter. Yeah. I immediately will say to that that I I still consider that I was extremely lucky. Mm. <laughs> and uh, that that's my take on it. And um, I think that when you've experienced su such a blessing in life, when in a relationship, you know, what more powerful thing, what greater treasure in life would we ever want than two people who love each other? Nothing could be more powerful than that. Mm. And, and, and life's too good to be true. And even if that has unnaturally been cut short, it's still a blessing and it, it's given me a lasting inspiration. So the answer is I'm still lucky. <laughs> Um, yes, yes, again, even at, at this point, you, you know, you, I, mm. I don't want to say you're inspired by, by the troubles that mm. you've been through, but one would prefer to be inspired yeah. by the sunrise or yeah. the sunset or the green grass yes. or the blooming roses or something like that. I don't think there's any doubt that your art is, is tremendously influenced by the tenacious attitude yeah. that you've had over the years and and to be honest not to have given up is just remarkable well i sincerely thank you for that but as i say all that i'm doing and any strength that i've gained is thanks to aki and the inspiration he he gave me and uh, lives on and his predictions he predicted long before you know his life was cut short he predicted that our story would be important and for different reasons of in a way he would never have you know no one would have known and he predicted the same with my new dimension of art expression i feel an artwork is like a living thing it's not about an ego trip it's about your duty and to platform it as best you can, mm. if that makes sense, mm. you know. I think it's not a great shame, but I think you almost have an obligation. If you have the talent, you are obliged by society, by humanity, by the community to share that with everyone. Absolutely. And if one is lucky enough to, to transfer any of that energy that we all need, mm. I think that it is a responsibility and that in a way I, I still say I, I'm lucky, but Obviously, the I've had unique challenges, but it goes with the territory. Mm -hmm. And it's like I said, when, when I came back to the UK, and it's like I was in a, the deepest grief. Mm. Suzanne, thanks so much for sharing your art with us and your incredible story on Inside the Gallery. Thank you so much for letting me tell you. Thank you. That's Suzanne Bailey-Yukawa with what is easily a most remarkable insight, not only into the inspiration behind her art, but also an intensely candid discussion into her life. And as you can imagine, there are significantly more details and perspectives to this story, and a quick Google search will return results, including press statements from many of the other parties involved. That is the podcast for now. Head to the website at www.insidethegallery.com.au to download a transcript of this edition, always made possible by Pixel Perfect Pro Lab. There's also links at our website to our Facebook and Instagram pages, as well as a link to sign up for our mailing list, which will only ever alert you to a newly published edition of this podcast. And let me assure you, you can unsubscribe at any time. As always, do what you can do at the moment to support the arts, keep safe, and follow social distancing as locally advised. I'm Tim Stackpool. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>